Misfit Toys. Welcome to episode 604 with my guest, Michael Bros. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the bullshit rattling around in our heads. I am not a therapist. Uh, it's not a doctor's office, more like a waiting room. That doesn't suck. I'm the cheerleader. The therapists and the support groups, that's the, that's the football team. I'm wearing a tight, tight little skirt over on the side saying, rah, rah, rah. Go do it. Go do it. Um, came from my support group meeting, which was about an hour ago. And uh, the topic was, what's going on in your head? And somebody asked me to share. And so uh, I thought, what is what is the sick mantra? You know, I have positive things that I try to tell myself to calm myself down when I start getting anxious or insecure. But the the main mantra in my brain is you don't have enough because you don't do enough. And the things that you do do, you don't do well enough because you are not enough. And that's a hard thing to admit. But if I hadn't started going to support groups, I would have never, ever identified that that's the mantra in my head because I had never done the work on myself to really look inward and really get quiet and not be numbed by drugs and alcohol and all my other addictions. To hear my true feelings and feel my true emotions, I had always been projecting it all. You're not doing this right. You're not doing that right. If only people would behave the way I need them to behave, then my dreams would come true and I would get everything that I want and I would be happy. And then I wouldn't be tailgating you in traffic and telling you you're a piece of shit at the stoplight. (laughs) Oh... Speaking of that, this is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Bird Person. I don't know if I read this one last week or not. I apologize if I did. Um, But she says, I have a mantra that's stuck in my head. You are a drunk cunt, a piece of shit, and you hate your life. In reality, I have good friends, a loving husband, and a good job. But recently, all those things have been suffering with me isolating and developing severe anxiety and an alcohol dependence I've never experienced to this degree before. I'm opening up with my struggles as I had been self-isolating about them. I'm at a crossroads and need help, and I'm finally accepting this. My husband and good friend know I really want help and finally know the extent of my true pain as I had been mostly able to put on a happy face. It's not going to be easy, but I want to change the self-narrative described above. I'm so glad you shared that. Um, And the the other thing I wanted to mention was um, the antidote to that mantra in our head. What works for me is human connection, whether it's allowing someone to help me or me helping someone else or just having a vulnerable conversation. That 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 was the game changer for me. And so I 
the woman that filled out the survey, uh, I have high hopes for you because you seem to be in a state of willingness. And that's when I think some of the greatest gifts in our lifetime, not necessarily physical gifts, but emotional and spiritual gifts, as hokey as that sounds, can, can come our way. This is from the love survey filled out by uh, Hardly Working, and they write, I love when I naturally wake up early on a weekend, make coffee, and put on a comfort show. I love when my dog wakes up from a nap and immediately demands pets. I love hot apple crisp on a cold fall day. And I love when I get home from work and my girlfriend runs over to give me a kiss. Isn't that awesome? Anytime anybody quickens their pace to come to us. What an amazing feeling. What an amazing feeling. I always love seeing people greet each other at the airport. You know, And never mind the fact that if five minutes later they're arguing and one of them is saying, I'm going to turn this car around and you're going to take a fucking flight back because you cannot talk to me like that. Forget that. Let's go five minutes earlier. The big eyes right at the at the gate. Although I guess people don't really meet each other at the gate anymore because you got to have a ticket to get through security. What the fuck am I talking about? People sometimes ask, people that have never been to support groups, um, ask what support groups are like. And an important part of them, at least for me, is making outreach phone calls. And sometimes the person can't pick up, so you leave a voicemail anyway. Sometimes you just, you just need to get something off your chest. So uh, I thought I'd record the most recent one that I left for someone and share it with you. Hello, we are not available now. Please leave your name and phone number after the beep. We will return your call. Hey, this is Paul. We met uh, yesterday at the Fab Friday meeting. Uh, I told you that I loved your share and you said to give you a call anytime. So this is my third attempt to reach you. Uh, maybe you're having trouble uh, playing back your voicemail. or I also texted you like eight or nine times, but I, I haven't heard back yet. So I hope you're okay. Um, I called the local hospitals and I said that I thought your name was Phil or Frank. But I didn't have anyone by those names, except for a little kid, oddly enough, named Philip Frank. I swear to God, you can't make this up. And they said that he does not have a beard to his waist. So it's probably not you. Um, I don't know. I hope you're not dead. But if you are, may God help us recover your body soon so that we can all move on. And honestly, I'm not spinning my wheels. I wish I could afford unlimited minutes, but I drink a lot of orange soda and it adds up. But anyway, I digress. Hopefully, you're just busy, which I think new best friends have to be okay with, and I am. I am. But let me know if you're alive. If not, hi. I'm so sorry for your loss. Phil or Frank was a great man. Let me know when the wake is and uh, and whether he was Phil or Frank. Ah! Fred! Fred! Okay. I better wrap this up and call those hospitals back. He has still not called me back. But I'm a spiritual person, so I won't hold it against him. <laughs> oh, sometimes my bits are so dumb, I laugh not at the attempted humor in them, but at how dumb they are. See, that's, that's me laughing at the mean mantra in my head. 
This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself, I hate moldy ceilings. And about her depression, uh, she writes, I walked into the garage to get a ladder for someone, and upon seeing the gardening tools, thought, just stab me in the neck with a spade. About her ADD, uh, saying to herself, maybe I'm fine, no mental illness or potential ADHD here, while I stand there overwhelmed by simply making my bed. That could be depression, too. Man, when I'm depressed, everything just feels like a slog up a mountain. This is uh, from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by uh, somebody who calls himself, It's Right Behind Me, isn't it? Um, About their compulsive eating. I need this specific crunch of barbecue-flavored store-brand Pringles to drown out this deep-seated knowledge that I am a stranger to myself. About their love addiction. Maybe if I shake my hair out of its bun at the right moment when I walk past you, we'll be together forever. (laughs) These are so good. (laughs) About their codependency. I will write you a beautiful love letter and leave it for you to make up for whatever thing I'm sure I did to make you act just slightly different this morning. Uh, And then another thing she deals with, which she doesn't name, she writes, coming to the long-suffering conclusion that there is something deeply wrong and unfixable within me that makes me akin to some creature that lives in the swamp and only surfaces to eat everyone's beloved pets, devastating them forever, and that it's about time to kill myself, and then waking up with my period the next day. Uh, snapshot from their life. After identifying my years of misadventures of the heart as love addiction, I'm no longer allowing myself to muse on the thoughts and behaviors that I've perpetuated in the past. I've started going to support groups specifically for my love addiction, and in the early stages of recovery, I'm faced with an aloneness that I've never entertained before. I feel a calling a deep need to disappear for a while into the chasm that lives inside me, but I'm only edging in so far, like getting used to a cold pool before diving in. It seems like before me is the gaping mouth of a cave, and as I stand at the entrance, all I can see in front of me is pure pitch black, and I know that I have to inch in to slowly test the floor in front of me with my toes and move forward with only a trust in what I can hear and smell and feel. I know that eventually, within the inky black, I will find myself, and I have to believe this is true, because right now, I don't know who I am. Shit. That's some fucking poetry. Damn. Damn. I need you to fill out more surveys. We are sponsored by uh, BetterHelp Online Therapy. They've been sponsoring us forever, and I'm so grateful for them. And I've been using their service for uh, forever. I think the 1890s is when I began therapy at BetterHelp. I would take the stagecoach, and then telephones were invented, and then television, and then the internet, and then computer monitors. And now I do it online. (laughs) I don't think I dragged that out long enough. The theme this month at BetterHelp 
is taking care of your brain. And one of the ways I take care of my brain is I do therapy with my therapy uh, lady. <laughs> I think she's called a therapist, Paul. My, uh, my therapy lady, uh, my therapy Sherpa, Heidi. And uh, she really helps, helps me discern reality from, uh, from my warped thinking. And uh, I get a lot out of it. So BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat-only therapy sessions. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. And you guys, the listeners, get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash mental. That's betterhelp.com slash mental. And make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from the podcast. This episode is sponsored by Fisher Wallace Labs. The brain is an electrical system, so Fisher Wallace developed a wearable brain stimulation device that is cleared by the FDA to treat depression, anxiety, and insomnia. It's been proven safe and effective in multiple clinical trials and is prescribed by over 14,000 doctors and providers. The majority of patients experience relief within two weeks without side effects. If you're already taking medication, it's safe to use in combination. Not every mental health treatment works for everyone, which is why Fisher Wallace has a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Try it for up to 30 days and return it for a full refund if it's not a game changer. Discover why Entrepreneur Magazine named Fisher Wallace one of five health tech startups to watch and why Elle Magazine raved about Fisher Wallace technology. Go to fisherwallace.com slash happy hour and then use the coupon code mental to save 10% on a purchase today. That's fisherwallace.com slash happy hour, promo code mental. And then finally, um, oh, and one thing that I, that I, I want to say before this uh, interview with uh, with Michael is, you know, Michael is a uh, former police officer. And the last time I aired an episode with a police officer, it was close on the heels of, sadly, yet another uh, police shooting of an unarmed young black man. And... Um, I, it, it's with some trepid and, and there was a lot of backlash. It was ill-timed and tone-deaf on my part to air it when I did do it. And I just wanted Brooke, who helps me edit the show, uh, said you want, might want to make sure when you air this episode that it's not right on the heels of another shooting. And I thought, A, she's right, and B, how fucked up is this country that I need to try to find a gap like I'm crossing a highway? I need to find a gap between cars to put this episode out there. So just wanted to preface that before before this, this episode because I'm nervous. I'm nervous. I'm nervous to begin with. But Michael is a fucking great man, and I know he's a good guy. And so, oh, boy, I've wound myself up into a state. I'm so afraid of somebody criticizing me. It's exhausting. It is exhausting. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself the cheese stands alone, and she writes, Backstory. My mother dated a man in the 90s that went on to murder two people. 
Also, my brother molested me. I was seven, he was 13, around the time my mother dated this man. The dude's in jail now for a 100 years or something. 20 years go by, and current story, I recently experienced a series of manic episodes in which I began to believe that this man had some information for me, so I wrote him a letter and we ended up talking on the phone. Keep in mind, this man is a violent killer. He told me that the reason he and my mother broke up was because he wanted to kill my brother. And he said, he has no idea how close he came. In a weird way, I kind of like the guy. Your fear of death is your love of life in reverse. I'm a kinky person. I didn't want to be... I'm, I'm ashamed. A sexual being. Deeply ashamed. You are... I want to live fucking depressed, but how? I can't do this anymore. I will be uncomfortable, so you will be comfortable. Is life just a series of perpetual losses? You're not depressed. We're black. There is no real chance for intimacy. We don't do that. Without risking being hurt. Push it all down. You can't go around it. Marlon, like we don't do mental health talk. Through is the only path. No one is ever alone. There's somebody else out there. Don't forget experiencing the same thing as you. That the places you feel most broken now. You just gotta look for them. Will one day be your greatest strength. And when you find them, it's a great feeling. And I'm suddenly feeling horrible about <laughs> making that joke, but that's how far I will go to get a laugh because I am empty inside. Uh, you're in the right place. I'm here with my buddy, Michael Bros. Um, we've known each other through a support group for, what, 10 years, 12 years? How long have you been sober? Coming up on nine years sober from alcohol. Yeah, and we have known each other for about that time off and on yeah and, uh, uh we have the same guy that mentors us and the um first tuesday of every month we go to his house and it's a group of guys uh and usually about eight of us and that's where we i mean we share and support other support groups uh about stuff but in that group we really bear our soul, really bear our yeah. souls. And you were sharing uh, this last Tuesday about PTSD from when you were uh, a cop. Yeah. And come to realize it goes back even before that way back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's before we get into uh, your life as a as a cop and that PTSD uh Let's just talk a little bit about you know, growing up, what it was like in your household, mm. how you viewed yourself in the world, etc. Sure. And before I get to that, because you said what it was like being a cop. And I got to say, when you say that, it's like I was a cop, you know, like you're talking right. about somebody else. And that's just the detachment that's taken place. And we'll get into that. But. Uh, yeah, so growing up, my parents had me at a really young age. They were high school sweethearts at North Hollywood High School. And I think my mom was 19. My dad was 20 when they had me. Um, kind of um, different stories from mom and dad on the first five years of my life. But um, according to my mom, it was me and her against the world. And I think I was like her, her sole sense of joy. And, you know, no that's doubt. a lot of pressure. Yeah. And something I recently came to realize, you know, is that that's a lot of pressure. And there was some enmeshment there that I was not aware of. But um, so my mom was on her own for many years. She was struggling financially, got to a place where she had to live out of her car. And at that point, she, 
handed me over to dad, or at least uh, full time with dad around the age of four or five. And my dad, um, I think he, he was a UPS driver at this time. Fast forward, he became a police officer. But I think I was in middle school when that happened. And um, my dad remarried my stepmom. And I think my mom, out of fear of you know losing me and them going through custody battles, she quickly remarried, feeling like, you know, I got to get him back being married and then being with somebody that has a house is going to look better in court. So, oh, I got you. Yeah. And then in a way, you know, it's it's like it's it's weird. I'm redefining things that happen. And so initially to me, that was, wow, my mom loves me so much. She sacrificed her well-being and got married right away. And now it's like, no, what pressure, you know, that you made that decision um, for me in a way. And, and I carry some of that. But uh, anyway, so they, they both remarried. My dad's house was always fairly structured. You know, it was like uh, dinners at this time, get your homework done before you go play with your friends, bedtimes at this time. And, you know, in hindsight, there's a lot of comfort in that stability and rules, mm-hmm. you know, and they weren't excessive, but it was stability. Um, and then I would go to my mom's house. Uh, she remarried. And my ex-stepfather, they're, they're no longer married alcoholic, uh, come to find out drug addict, opioids, um, angry, bad temper. And I will say my my dad, I would describe him as an angry man as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I've never been the victim of physical abuse, sexual abuse, but I've been surrounded by anger. You know, I've been surrounded by, I would say, emotional neglect. And uh, that came primarily in the form with mom, Um, her alcoholism, Kind of like when I would go to her house, which mom am I going to get today? Is it going to be sober, coherent mom, or is it going to be kind of loopy, maybe do something embarrassing mom? You know, Mm -hmm. like, for example, um, I would have friends sleep over every once in a while. And I remember this image of her being drunk and coming out naked. And wow. Yeah. In front of, you know, one of my friends and just one of those images that has stuck with me. And it's strange. I wonder, is that really how it went down, that image I had? But to me, it's it's real, you know. And so when I think of of like. And was that kind of a, a one off of her walking around naked? Yeah, at least that incident was. Okay. Um, there was also some violence. You know, my mm-hmm. stepdad would occasionally uh, come home drunk. And I don't know how many times this happened. I just know I have this image of it was a really small house. And sometimes my my brothers and I, I have two younger brothers, actually three younger brothers, but two from my mom. And we would sleep on the living room floor, really small house. So it was like if one thing happened on one end, you heard it 20 right. feet away. So there wasn't really a way to hide or escape things that were happening. And I would stay up um, laying on the floor and I'd be wide awake waiting for my stepdad to get home because he would come home drunk. And then it was, okay. now are they going to get into an argument? And so it was just the waiting, waiting, you know, when's this thing going to happen? And sometimes nothing would happen. He'd come home and pass out or go to sleep. And that was that. And other times it would be an argument. And, um, you know, just not knowing the not knowing when the constantly being on edge and waiting for when's the next confrontation going to happen. And, you know, being the oldest sibling, I felt like a protector. You know, it's strange. So at my mom's house, I really I felt like the father figure to my brothers and I felt responsible for them. 
Let me make sure their homework gets done. Make sure they brush their teeth and shower before bed. And then at my dad's house, because it was more stable, my brother from my dad, that felt more like we could be brothers because we had that stability. So I could allow myself to have fun and Mm. be creative and just be the brother and not have to, you know, take care of. Then, you know, and I think with that, like, I'm grateful that I had that stability at my dad's house. I remember always feeling guilty when I would leave my mom's. I'm leaving my brothers in that environment and I can't protect them when I'm not there. Um, So there was some guilt with that. And then it was also like I'm growing up and I'm getting two different um, family dynamics and which one is right. You know, it's hard to make sense of, okay, this one's really chaotic. And then this other one is stable with some chaos. Mm -hmm. But. So constantly having to change my perspective and the way I feel, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, what a mixed message about love and and family. Mm-hmm. It's uh, I imagine in your childhood brain um, stepping in to be the parent when you were at your mom's, you know, to look over your brothers, to take care of, you know, your mom probably felt like love on some level from your part that I'm loving my mom I'm being a good son and Mm -hmm. probably having no idea that it was robbing you of your childhood absolutely in the moment proud big brother and I'm doing what any big brother does but in hindsight we learn what other family dynamics are like and and compare and realize okay that's not how most people grew up and I don't like to use the word normal but it um, wasn't healthy by any means. Right. Yeah. There's a great book I love to plug uh, called Running on Empty by Dr. Janice Webb. And she was a guest on this podcast. And it's about emotional neglect and a really, really important book, I think, for anybody to read, but especially people who grew up in households that it just felt like something was missing. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe mm-hmm. people weren't being beat or sexually abused or yelled at, but there was a disconnect there. And um, that is its own, you know, form of um, a wound, mm-hmm. a wound. Um, you know, when I think back, I feel like there was more trauma that happened in mom's home environment. And when I think of memories of her, the first thing that comes to mind is her sleeping at all hours of the day, her room being really dark, and um, you know, come to find out that's depression. Yeah. But you know, I didn't know what to make of it then. And then fast forward in my life, that's one of the ways I get out of reality. Draw the blinds, go to bed. And, you know, we learn that stuff at such an early age. Yeah. It's so oddly comforting when you're, when you're depressed. And people who aren't depressed look at it and you're like, wow, you're just making yourself more depressed. But in that moment, it feels like the only thing that that doesn't feel like jumping into an ice cold pool. You know, for me, that that when I'm depressed, everything, human connection, responsibility, everything just feels like an ice cold pool except for my pillow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, another recent memory, a lot of memories have been stirred mm-hmm. up in the past few months. And right. um, a memory that I have at my mom's house is standing in the, our bedroom and we had like a big closet mirror, sliding mirror. And I'd, I'd stare in that mirror a lot, you know, trying to figure out who am I, you know. And I remember cr- maybe 10, 11 years old and staring in the mirror, crying, feeling like what's wrong with me? There's something mm-hmm. different about me. 
but I don't have a word for it. I just feel different from other people. And then around that same time, getting a self-help book, like 10, 11 years old, wow. on how to be happy, right? Oh, my God. And all I remember from that book is one of the, the pointers it gave is to drink juice because that can boost your energy <laughs> levels, you know, like make you feel better. But point being, here I am at 10. And you bought and, it yourself? Yeah. So here it is me trying to parent me because I'm not yeah. getting, you know, we're not talking about emotions and feelings and right. and. Hey, mom, dad, why do I have this empty void inside of me? What's that all about? How come I look in the mirror and cry? You know, yeah. but yet I can't tell you that I do that. Yeah. You know, I didn't share that with anybody. And yeah. this is probably the second time I'm sharing it in my life. <laughs> yeah. Kids don't have the, the uh, vocabulary to say I'm experiencing existential dread. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like something horrible is just around the corner. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what's the next phase? of your life? What are the teenage years like? Yeah, you know, so growing up, I was really outgoing, uh, playful, into sports, grew up playing baseball, wanted to be a pro baseball player growing up like so many kids do. And then um, <clears throat> started high school. And it was like, I, w I was in public school, elementary, middle school, and then I went to a private Catholic school. And something happened from middle middle school to high school where People stopped being kids, and it's like they, they knew how to live life, and they knew how to interact and socialize. They knew maybe how to have a dating relationship. And so I realized at this point that I'm behind the curve. Like, I don't know how to interact with people. I feel totally uncomfortable in my skin all the time. And so I just kind of shut down. And the first couple of years of high school, I would de describe myself as mute, like rarely talk to people, very, very shy. And really just an observer, you know, and, and the worst thing that people could do was point that out. You know, that's the last thing I wanted was somebody to say, you're really shy or you don't talk a lot. Uh, and were you big for your age? Were you athletic at that point? And the reason I say this, uh, this is for the listeners, is uh, Michael is he looks like a handsome linebacker. And I think people who would just meet you would say, man, that guy's got it. That's good. When you walked up to, yeah. to my house, I was like, why can't I work out more? Jesus Christ, look at, look at him. Well, and I'm sure we'll talk more about it, but the driving force I've come to realize is that's a way to protect myself from the world because I'm a scared kid. And so if I can present that I'm this 230-pound muscular guy I, that, you know, you're not going to mess with me because I'm, I'm afraid that you will. Yeah. So it's my way to keep people at bay. Yeah. Yeah. But, <laughs> and I, working out has saved my life, you know, so it's not just the physical aspects of it. I'm sure you've heard many times, um, just an outlet, you know, and, and it's been one of the most beneficial outlets. I've found some unhealthy outlets, but I think working out has really saved me. So you're in high school, you feel like you don't fit in. Are you playing sports at yeah, that time? Yeah, so playing baseball and um, where I went to high school, really top-notch athletic program. I was an outfielder, and the outfielders I was competing with, uh, two went D1, one, one went professional, so I'm riding the bench. And my dreams of being a pro baseball player someday, it's like I'm not even going to play college ball. So that oh. fell at the wayside. Did you go to Notre Dame? I did. High school? Yeah, yeah. Notre Dame, Sherman Oaks. Oh, my God, a... a athlete factory yeah football baseball yeah I, I should have gone to grant and got some some playing time but yeah <laughs> which also put people into the into the pros grant high school right mm -hmm. that's right yeah yeah 
Oh, and so I got into uh, cross country. My mom, growing up, um, or I should say when I was just a kid, she would run marathons, and she was a, a very successful high school cross-country runner at the time. Women in cross-country wasn't as popular. She finished second place in the LA Marathon, you know, in the women's division at some point. Um, had a scholarship to UCLA, but then she had some medical issues. So um, when I was a kid, we would run together, and it was just something that I'd always enjoyed doing. I would run to build endurance for baseball, got into cross-country junior, senior year, and just absolutely saved my life. You know, like if I can backtrack a little bit, um, you know, the constant anxiety, even in middle school, high school started to manifest itself. And so I would have this really bad twitch in high school, um, like blinking, Mm -hmm. not realizing what was causing it. Like, Oh, this is, this is caused because of my anxiety that's built up in my body. Am I, you know? Um, but when I would run, it, it would stop. And I realized like the importance of of physical activity for me. And when I'm doing that thing that I feel so passionate about, I'm releasing that energy that or that ball that just feels so heavy, you know? Yeah. And and there's something really nice about feeling like your body is your friend. Mm -hmm. I think when we're in dysfunction or trauma or neglect, um, it's like it feels like our body's working against us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, with the physical activity, of course, there's the neurotransmitters and dopamine and um, endorphins. But for me, it's it's really a way that I get in touch with my body. I think one of the defense mechanisms I've had is detachment and kind of viewing my life as a movie or or leaving my body. And so when I'm physical, I'm able to get back in touch. You know, yeah. it brings my spirit back into my body because I'm focusing on my body and it gets back to that mind-body connection that's so important. So I actually feel more tired, more foggy when I'm not working out. Like it's yeah. never the thought of, oh, I don't want to work out because I'm tired. No, it's an energy boost for me. I feel more alive. And it's that positive motion is positive emotion. Yeah. As Tony Robbins said, which after the the initial self-help books, I graduated to Tony Robbins. Gotcha. Yeah. And are you still a fan of his? Yeah, I'll, I'll go back to it every once in a while. Yeah. You know, like and the first, uh, ser- I think, power of, I can't remember, but um, it's one of his original ones, and I'll go back to it at times. Yeah. Was it the power of white teeth? No. <laughs> the power of white teeth? No. His, was... his white teeth. He's always got those, those big white choppers. Yeah. Um, so, oh, I thought you were complimenting my teeth. Yeah. See, it's all about <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what's what's the next kind of uh, phase? Uh, you're out of high school. Um, yeah. So the running gave me a sense of identity and I started coming out of my shell a bit and I noticed it was affecting. I was being more sociable and I was being more playful. Um, so then college came around. Wasn't sure what to do. Um, my dad was a police officer by this point. And he, you know, it was never a, you need to be a police officer or firefighter, but it was like, you should. And it's a practical job. My dad's very practical. Um, you know, it's going to pay the bills. You can retire. You can have a pension, deferred comp. So mm-hmm. the should in my mind was like, you need to. Right. And, and also on that, um, you know, growing up, my dad was loving, you know, like he would, he was baseball coach for my teams and stuff. But again, we never talked about emotion. It just was unsaid. Uh, my dad, I don't think has ever initiated a hug with me. 
And ultimately, at some point, you know, I, I would get the message sometimes of don't be a pussy or mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever said you're a pussy, but at least that's the way my brain interpreted it. And so I made it my goal, not realizing at the time I'm going to prove my dad wrong, mm-hmm. that I'm not that I'm a strong man, too. And so I, I followed in his footsteps. And did you see were there any changes in your dad as he was a cop? Did you see the the job take its mm. toll on him, or did he pretty much remain the same guy? That's something I never thought about, and I would say he became more cynical, um, less active in my life, and that has to do with the hours, I'm sure. But I think he was also getting into things outside of the job. But, but for whatever reason, he just wasn't around a lot. You know, he would occasionally show up to like a cross-country meet or something, but I don't have a lot of close memories with Dad. And to this day, my ultimate goal was for my dad to look me in the eyes and say, Michael, I'm proud of you and I love you. And I have not heard that yet to this day. Um, I had also wanted him to give me a hug at some point. I'm a very affectionate person. I like physical contact. I've initiated initiated hugs with him and they've been like a side hug. But, you know. Mm -hmm. The idea that my dad would just hug me and tell me he's proud of me, I think, was a driving force and has continued to be. So let's talk about your decision to become a cop. Mm. How how old were you when you when you made that decision? Yeah, I like that you said your decision because it didn't feel like my decision. And it was. You're absolutely right. Uh, It just felt like the next right thing to do. I was at uh, CSUN for a couple of years, my drinking had started really picking up in college. And, you know, I talked about that being socially uncomfortable in high school. Mm-hmm. My solution then was alcohol, joined a fraternity. Mm-hmm. And now I have the solution and alcohol is, you know, I'm not uncomfortable in my skin and it worked for a while, yeah. right? Until it doesn't. And, um, didn't do very well in school. So applied to, I think the fire department first, I was 19 didn't get accepted, um, applied to LAPD at 20 years old and got hired at 21. And, you know, 21, wow. Like at the time, sure, I thought I knew it all. I thought I was ready. Uh, Looking back, I had no idea what I was getting into. And you're how old now? 43. Okay. Uh, So take us back to those first years of of being a cop. You know, one of the things that you said in our support group the other night was very soon— after you became a cop, you realized that you had made a terrible mistake. Yeah, well, I don't consider any of it a mistake. I think mm-hmm. it all... What, what were the words that you used that, that it wasn't what you wanted? I think maybe I wasn't built for it. That was you know, it. that my, yes. my upbringing did not prepare me for a stressful job. My upbringing, I was not shown how to cope with stress in any healthy way. Um, And I, you know, based on some of the traumas that I had seen in my house and with my mom's alcoholism, I was emotionally damaged already. And law enforcement is not a job you want to get into when you're emotionally damaged and have difficulty coping with stress. Um, You know, a quick story I want to share in the police academy at seven months. And it's kind of like going to school. You're learning about law, Spanish, tactics, driving, uh, firearms. And we were watching a video one day. I think it was the week on uh, suicides and homicides. And they had like detectives come out and talk to us. But they showed a picture um, of a young lady that was killed in a car accident. 
And I'm in a class with like 40 guys at the time. And most people are kind of snickering and, and making jokes or whatever. As you know, we cope mm-hmm. with things like that with humor. But at 21, um, I, you know, I consider myself highly sensitive and emotional. And, and I walked out crying of our classroom. And one of the squad leaders came out. What's going on, Mike? What's going on? And I'm like, you know, that's somebody's daughter. And you got and they're laughing in there about it. Big red flag. Like maybe, mm-hmm. you know, maybe I'm not quite cut out. Maybe these aren't my people, if you will. Right. But and don't get me wrong. Um, some of the police officers I've worked with over the years, most compassionate, loving people in the world mm-hmm. and some of the biggest heartless assholes in the world, just like right. many jobs. But I always like to throw that out there that, um, you know, I have a lot of respect for the people that that do stick with it and have the best intentions going out there. And there's a lot of them. Um, but point being, so I, I pushed through the academy. And I did probation in Hollywood, which is like your first year on the job rookie, 22 years old. And what I shared the other day was Hollywood. Oh, my God. Yeah. Talk about being thrown into a booyah bays of fucking crazy and criminal. Yeah. And this is before, you know, Craigslist and online was really popular. So we still had prostitutes walking the street and their pimps following them and they would get into shootings over the prostitutes. I think it's a little different ballgame now with the online world. But yeah, Hollywood had everything. Beautiful homes in the hills that were getting broken into. And then the streets of Hollywood are not glamorous by any means. No. Yeah. No. Uh, and so give me some snapshots from... Yeah, well, I think let's go with day one, work in the streets. And I'm with my training officer and full of anxiety, you know, and and I think that's pretty normal. But this was beyond. This was unbearable. And so I I asked him to pull over at some point. There was an Andy Gump on the corner so I could throw up. Uh, That's a portable toilet. Yes, uh, porta potty. Thank you. Yeah. And, and thank goodness for them because uh, he pulled over and I ran in there and threw up and came out. And he's like, did you throw up? You know, my eyes are bloodshot watery. Yeah, I did. And, you know, fast forward, come to realize that was kind of a joke, like something that was shared with the other guys on my first day I threw up. I spent the next 12 years uh, working patrol for the most part of that period, feeling that way the whole time. Wow. And the, the difference being is the way I prevented myself from throwing up was to emotionally, um, what's the word, detach myself, you know, shut down emotionally. Because if I feel that, I'm, I can't do my job. You know, how am I supposed to do my job if I'm just trying to keep my, my stomach down, right? And so I think that— And how would you specifically do that? Would you just go to a place in your mind where you would push it out? Would you think of something else? What? How did you bring that about, that ability to detach? Yeah, I think it was subconscious. And what my mind did is it turned my job into a movie. So I'm never totally in the middle of it. I'm kind of observing it and watching it. And there was times that I was tentative to react. I mean, you know, we talk about with trauma, there's fight, flight, or freeze. Mm-hmm. My innate go-to is to... F- flight or freeze, you know, to, to get out of there or, or freeze. And so here I'm in a position where no, your only choice is to fight. And when people are running away from the emergency, your job is to run into it. Which is just mind blowing. Yeah. And so I think 
the way my mind saved me was to disconnect from it, to see it as, okay, this is somebody else. You know, Michael Bros isn't the one in the middle of this. You know, I'm watching myself do this. And the other way was um, alcohol. You know, and I knew I had issues with alcohol before law enforcement. I thought getting this uh, responsible job might be more motivation <laughs> to stay sober, right? <laughs> but learn pretty quickly, not the case. And so that was one more way that I, I coped with these emotions was mm-hmm. to numb them, alcohol, and to shut down. I imagine uh, excessive drinking is not just a stereotype of police. Uh, you see it a lot in, in TV and movies. Uh, is, is that pretty accurate? Yeah, we were, I'd work a 12-hour shift, get off and go to my um, my spot, local watering hole, and, and drink for three, four hours, get four hours sleep, and wake up and do another 12-hour shift. And that, you know, became my routine. Um, you know, I, I should say there were times I, I didn't go to the bar every night, but it was usually we would work three or four days in a row. And so sometimes it was just work, sleep, work, sleep. But I'm just counting down the hours for my next day off so I can get some relief from alcohol. And sometimes that's what kept me going through those right. uh, blocks of work. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, it, it is the social aspect of it. Um, get off work, go hang out with the guys and, and women too, and talk about the job more. So it's like as if 12 hours of it, being immersed mm-hmm. in it isn't enough. Let's go talk about it for a few more hours. What was, was some aspect of that, uh, did it allow you to decompress to be able to talk about it? Because I, I would imagine that's not all bad depending on how it's mm-hmm. talked about. Correct. And I think the point, depending on how it's talked about. And so it was never like, Oh, I, I felt really anxious today in that one situation. Right. It's or, more like that shitbag got yeah, what he deserved. Yeah, and you tell it as an exciting story, and, and it is exciting at times. But the parts we would leave out were how I was physically feeling ill and how I was getting horrible headaches and how I was having these um, nightly nightmares and how my stomach was always upset. I mean, we're not going to talk about that stuff. Or how uh, I would go home and cry. You know, can't cry on the job. So I would have to keep that in for the the rest of the shift because of something I saw. And then right after some traumatic scene, it's like on to the next radio call, on to the next. So there's no processing of that thing that happened, you know, whether it's, um, you know, seeing a 19-year-old girl killed in a car accident. Um, Even, you know, just the small daily confrontations. I think the biggest challenge wasn't the the huge the shootings or the car accidents that's all, that was always a fear but it was just the daily what confrontation is going to happen today and driving to work palm sweating heart pounding and not so much what did happen but what might happen and i got to say i was pretty fortunate i never got into a shooting never got into a horrible car accident like i'd seen many of my coworkers but it was the constantly waiting for when is it my turn I had worked 12 years of patrol, hadn't been in a major car accident, and uh, most people don't know, but most officers are, are killed in car accidents, not by firearms. Really? Yeah, most and most officers that are killed by firearms are killed by with their own gun, and one, because a suspect might take their gun, but more so because they end their own life with their, with their gun and something that at least wasn't talked about a lot when I was on the job, and I think things are, are changing. They're more progressive, but... Did, did you uh, lose any cops that you were close to, 
to car accident or suicide or, or being killed on the job? Yeah, so I, I lost a couple friends in one friend in a car accident who was off duty. Mm-hmm. Um, another, do you remember the the Amtrak train wreck in mm-hmm. Chatsworth? That yeah. was what two thousand nine. There was a friend of mine, Officer Deshay, that was on that, and that was a big hit. Um, but a lot of near misses, you know, friends in bad car accidents, injuries. Realizing like every time we would drive through an intersection, because that's where most bad accidents take place, somebody runs a red light. Every time we would go through an intersection, I'm like bracing to this day. You because know? you're going through the red light with the sirens on. Yeah, or just we're going through a green light and a drunk driver is going to run the red light. And right. we're usually going faster than safe to get to an emergency. I got you. So, um, but to this day, I notice when I'm driving the same feelings and going through an intersection and, you know, kind of tensing up because if a car runs a red light, that hypervigilance, right? And we're trained to be hypervigilant mm-hmm. and to constantly play out scenarios of if this person does this, how am I going to react to um, you walk into a restaurant, scan the room, where are the potential Mm -hmm. threats, right? A good officer is always aware of his surroundings, is always prepared. And that served me well in law enforcement. Every room is a perimeter. (laughs) And every person a potential threat and to always be aware of people's hands because their hands are what can kill you. And um, yeah, it benefited me then. I've, I've, been away from law enforcement since 2013, nine years, but I still carry that with me. I still am always scanning the room. I'm still trying to perceive if that person is a threat or not, just as if it was yesterday, you know, as if they're going to call me back into work tomorrow and I got to be ready to go. Right. What are the situations where you don't scan? I would imagine our Tuesday night meeting, you can relax. Absolutely. That has been a safe haven. Um, There's a few safe places. And one is that meeting. And another is my bedroom, which is a good thing, but can be a negative thing. You know, if I really hunker down in there and start disconnecting and isolating, but it is somewhere I feel safe. Of course, I have my dog too. And what great therapy dogs can be. Oh, you know? my God. What's your dog's name again? Snow. She's Snow. a 12-pound Chihuahua, which is half Chihuahua, half Wiener dog. Yeah. 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 Dachshund. My yeah. baby girl. So what, if you're comfortable, uh, what, if any, are some of the moments that kind of uh, haunt you that you saw or experienced when you were a cop? Uh, I'd never been exposed to death before that. And again, I didn't have a lot of life life experience. I had school, some sports, and then college for a couple of years of partying. So not a lot of life experience. And I learned pretty quickly. Um, well, get back to the death. You know, I have daily flashes in my mind that play over like a broken record. And it's just pictures. And there's a few uh, scenes of, of death, whether suicides or homicides, and those pictures like to pop in my head at the most random, um, you know, unhelpful times. I can be having a conversation with somebody and I just get that image or I'm laying in bed trying to sleep and it pops in my mind. And, uh, you know, the first death investigation I handled this I remember it very clearly. I think we always remember our first because after that, there's countless and they all kind of um, uh, combine or they're they're just, you know, but this first incident was this. He had AIDS and he had 
isolated himself. He was a teacher, and he had been deceased for a few weeks. It was summer, and the neighbors smelled the odor and called us. But we walk in, and it just instantly reminded me of a scene from Seven, like just gory, and his body was bloated. It didn't look like a human being. And the smell is still something that I can conjure up in my mind. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just the visual. There's also our other senses, I think, can and they be they say that the sense of smell is the most closely uh, related to emotion. It, Interesting, yeah. Because yeah. when that image pops in my head, I, the smell comes back too. And, and I remember the coroner saying, you know, breathe through your mouth because I was gagging. But then you taste it. So it's like whether you see it or smell it or taste oh, it, it, it likes to replay itself. And, you know, those intrusive thoughts, you know, I I think maybe people don't realize like it's a choice. Well, why think about it? Don't think about it. No, no, this is I want to get rid of these pictures. But it's like somebody keeps holding them up to my face saying, look at this. Remember that? Man, that's heavy. Yeah. When you sleep at night, are there recurring bad dreams? that you have yeah absolutely i think that's um i i would have two recurring dreams with the police department which i have to this day and one is a altercation you know a shooting um a suspect gets the jump on me and and i'm on the defensive Mm -hmm. and they'll usually wake up screaming or yelling in a puddle of sweat and Funny but not funny. Sometimes I'll punch and kick in my sleep, and mm-hmm. I've had uh, intimate partners that it scared them, or I've physically, you know, punched them while sleeping. Um, and the the dream, the other dream is I'm trying to get my uniform on in the locker room, but I can't find all the pieces for it. It's like I'm missing some tool or the gun or my pants or boots. And what I've been able to uh, equate that with is just that feeling of powerlessness. You know, that I am not in control. And and it's just amazing how, how dreams can... It's like it was trying to give me a sign for so long, but not until recently did I was I able to put it into words or make sense of it. So what... Well, let's talk about when you left the force. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to add, too, because I, I didn't have a lot of life experience, I was like put in situations with domestic violence or issues in people's homes. And it's like, I'm trying to give people advice on, on how to have a healthy relationship in marriage when I'd never experienced that for myself or, or people calling us on how to, um, to help their kids or to scare their kids. And it's like, I didn't have any kids of my own. So I felt out of my element and behind the curve for a long time. So what, what happened that led to you? Yeah. So I had some struggles with alcohol over the years. Uh, in hindsight, it's amazing. I kept that job for 12 years. I think I was well-liked and I was given a couple chances. Uh, the city paid for me to go to three different inpatient treatments. Um, and were you drinking on the job? No, never drank before work. Definitely went to work hungover mm-hmm. and not a feeling I miss. That job is is hard enough without wow, being hungover. I can't imagine. Yeah. Some sleepless nights just out drinking, going to work. And I'm sure I still had alcohol in my breath, but never like drank right before going to work. Um, but I reached out for help and with the focus being alcohol. Like, that's my problem, my drinking, which I felt like I kind of learned from my mom. 
as a way to cope. At the time, not realizing, no, it's PTSD. But went to a few different treatments, very helpful. Each time I'd leave treatment, just feeling better than I ever had and so grateful and like, you know, I'm ready for this now. And usually a month or two after leaving, I'm back in the same situations, environment and relapse. And that would play out over and over. I was a guy that would get one month sober, six months sober. I think I had a year sober at one point, relapse and fall back into that. And with each relapse, it's like there's we lose even more hope or I lost more hope. Mm -hmm. It's like work paid for me to go to treatment. I've been sober this long and then I relapsed. And so that hope got real small that I'm going to be able to like get it together and uh, finally, ultimately, what happened is my depression, PTSD, anxiety got the best of me, and I was missing a lot of days of work, started just not showing up. And, you know, work would have to come door knock. Uh, there was actually not long after my first treatment at a place called Michael's House in Palm Springs, uh, I made, you know, I made friends with somebody there. You know, we, we connect with, we usually have like a road dog in treatment. And I don't remember this. I was in a blackout, but I relapsed shortly after that treatment. And I think I lost all hope in my drunken stupor. I messaged my friend from treatment. I'll see you on the other side. I can't take it anymore. And what I woke up to was work kicking my door in to do a welfare check and make sure I was okay. You know, I don't remember sending that text, but luckily they found me alive. I was kind of forced to go to treatment again. But yeah, you know, situations like that. And it's it's amazing. I kept my job for as long as I did. And again, I think that was because I was well-liked and they really wanted to see me succeed. But I wasn't ready. So I got to tell you, it's like when I got, I resigned in lieu of, but I was going to get terminated. I was going to be fired for all intents and purposes. And there was a lot of shame in that. Like this, this goal I had of being successful, approving myself, showing dad, no, I'm tough. I can do this. I failed. And that was, that was what I decided to identify myself as a failure. You know, I had this big plan of succeeding in law enforcement and I failed. And it is interesting at that point, you probably knew very little about alcoholism or at least had surrendered to the fact that an alcoholic, that you know, the problem of of drinking is the you know the symptom of a deeper underlying cause, which is you know mm-hmm. fear, resentment, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And at that point, I, I imagine you had no idea that you were up against an alcoholic mind. That you aren't a weak person. You're a sensitive person living in an insensitive world. Yeah. Yeah. I think I knew I had an alcoholic mind, but I didn't. I don't think I knew the underlying causes and conditions that they talk about. Mm-hmm. And so I was just attacking the alcoholism, and I had some success in that. But you know, I'll tell you something. I realized, um, and I, you know, I'm all for the steps. I've worked the steps, but there's not a lot of focus on the trauma. No. Yeah. So I'd shared my story. My grandmother took me to my first support group when I was 19. Um, she was the anchor, you know, in my life. She passed this last year. And so I knew at an early age that I had some issues with alcohol. I didn't get sober until this last time around 35 years old. Um, so, but I knew I had an issue with alcohol. It was, it was just not realizing that there was more to it. Mm-hmm. Oh, and also, so when I was in the process of being terminated or mm-hmm. fighting for my job at the end, there's a, a board, it's like an internal courtroom and there's two captains and a civilian. And towards the end of it, the captain's looking at my work history record and he's going through it. And 
his only response is, it looks like you had a pretty unremarkable career. And part of that, yeah, part of that was because I stayed in the same division for almost the entirety of my career. We talk about how we can get comfortable and afraid of, of movement and change. And I look back and it's like, it's because I, it's what I knew. It's what I was comfortable with, even though it was hell. And so that stuck with me for a long time. Like I had sacrificed 12 years of my life, my own mental health and well-being, just to be told that was unremarkable. Wow. And that really uh, fueled the I'm a failure. And I would say up until recently, um, that's how I've defined myself, one failure after another. And, I, you know, we'll get more into the, the trauma therapy, but I've changed that word, failure, into survivor and how empowering just changing that one word is like, no, yeah, I wasn't very successful because I was just trying to get through the day. I was trying to make it back home safe. I wasn't thinking about how am I going to further my career and and move up in the ranks. It was just how am I going to get home tonight or tomorrow so that I can get some relief from alcohol. There was no future in it. And I think when we get to that place where whether it's a relationship that didn't work out or a job, that we can that we can look at it not as I failed, but it wasn't a good fit. Mm-hmm. Or this helped me eliminate that as an idea of something that I wanted to pursue. Uh, I don't think it's until we're older that we can really see how great the process of elimination can be for us on our road to authenticity. Exactly. Great point. And so in the moment back then, I'm a failure. And now I look back on it, I'm a survivor. And some part of me found a way out to save myself. Because had I continued with that job, I don't think I'd be alive today. I think I would have just continued being miserable. And, you know, I was already at a pretty low bottom. So anything further than that, I I don't think I'd be here right now. So something in me realized this isn't for me. And so then, then what happened when when did you begin to give weight to the trauma yeah you know so when i was a police officer that job i think compared to other jobs it is you're a police officer all the time in the same mannerisms that you have at work we tend to carry outside of work so when i would go into places off duty i was still hyper vigilant when i'm with my loved ones it was i need to protect them and everybody's a threat and even on my days off you know the I wasn't able to really breathe or relax because I'm just counting down the days till I have to go back into that environment. So I can't say there was any reprieve for those 12 years. And it wasn't just when I was awake. It's when I was asleep, too, because it was affecting my sleep. So there's just there was no break from from it. When I left, I continued with that outlook because it's all I had known. My identity was Mike the cop. And um, the period after law enforcement was really who am I now? If I'm not a police officer, which is kind of all I know, the only world I know, who am I? What do I have to give? Um, I had some sobriety from alcohol. I think I got sober in August of 2013, which is right around the time I lost that that career. Um, Lost my train of thought there, but giving weight to the to the trauma thank you so trying to to move forward from that Mm -hmm. but realizing 
I'm not a police officer anymore, but I'm still having the same thoughts, the same dreams, the same feelings. It's like you're getting a shitty pension. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I'm not getting paid for it anymore. I'm not getting paid to feel anxious and on edge, but I, here I am. And, you know, at some point along the way, I had this thought of maybe I have PTSD. It was like a fleeting thought, but I didn't really know what it was. And at the same time, I had been living this way for so long that this is normal. I mean, it's how do you diagnose like this is just life, at least for me, right? And growing up, you know, I, I think the world or our, our family dynamics is the way we view the world. And so for me, the world is unsafe, chaotic, cold, uh, scary. And then I get into law enforcement, which just reinforce that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the truth is law enforcement isn't reality. It's one perspective of it. But every interaction is negative. You know, dealing with the best, kindest people, they're having a bad day. So it's just like one negative interaction, observation after another. And then I came to believe that's the world. You know, the world is ugly. The world is unsafe. And you couple that with the belief that the only way to prevail is to be macho. And to bury things and to not feel. Mm -hmm. And which reminds me, there were times, you know, shaking in my boots, walking up to a car at night and not knowing if if they're going to start shooting because we were always on the defensive. Um, So physically shaking in my boots, but doing everything in my power to hide it. And I think I got really good at hiding it. You know, and, and with the, the big physique, too. And um, but deep down being scared as hell. And that job is like 99 percent paperwork and mundane with one percent of, oh, shit, it, it's happening and it happens fast adrenaline. But it's 99 percent of that time is waiting for that one percent to happen. Right. So what changed? What what led to you deciding to seek treatment for PTSD? So I actually didn't start uh, trauma therapy until six months ago, and I've been away from law enforcement for nine years. When I left law enforcement, uh, again, I didn't feel like I had a lot of life experience, but I had times in and out of my support group, Mm -hmm. and I had six months sober from alcohol, and I felt like, okay, that's something positive I have, and I started working in treatment. I was a, a driver at an adult treatment center. And just driving people to their appointments and stuff and having conversations, like these really heartfelt conversations. And I don't know what it is about being in a car, but people just really open up. It's like we're staring forward. We don't even have to look each other in the eyes, but you can bear your soul. And I just found a lot of relief in that. Um, So then I I had an opportunity to to, uh, start working with teenagers at a teenage treatment center. And I've been doing that for about six years now. I started off as a mentor for a year, like working the floor with them constantly. And then there was an opening to be a recovery counselor. And as long as I was going to school for addiction studies, the spot was mine. I had you know, built a good reputation there. Um, so not a therapist, but able to sit down and have sessions one-on-one with teenagers. And as I alluded to, for me, being a teenager was very uncomfortable, one of the most awkward periods of my life, feeling lost, feeling like I didn't have a lot of guidance. Um, so, so rewarding to be able to sit down with teens and and be there for them and talk to them in a way that I wish others had talked to me when I was that age. And, and, I, and I just have to interject that you have such a safe, inviting Demeanor, you are, are, and I'm not just saying this because you're a guest on the podcast, but you are um, 
one of my one of my favorite people. Um, you go deep when when we're Gracie agrees, uh, <laughs> and there the, you have an aura about you that that just says, uh, "I'm safe. I'm safe for you." And what a gift to not only the the people around you and your support groups, but I imagine to those kids who mm-hmm. didn't have the language or it wasn't modeled for them to, to open up. Yeah, thank you, Paul. Um, you know, the running theme that I've come to see working with teens is 99% or more have all been traumatized on some level. And um, they turn to instant gratification for relief, like many of us have. Um, most of the female clients have been sexually traumatized, a lot of them by men. And the, the greatest gift I've been given in this job is when one of those female clients tells me they feel safe with me. They never thought they would feel safe with a man again, and they feel safe in my presence. A uh, hundred times more rewarding than anything I did in law enforcement, you know, and to, to like see that magic take place right in front of me. Not the best paying job in the world. It's not anything like I used to make. It doesn't come with the benefits, but it has paid my soul like no other. It's given me a sense of purpose like I've never known. Working with teens is my niche. And I'm, I'm taking a little time off work from right um, from work for right now while I'm doing this trauma therapy. And, um, you know, I'm fast forwarding a little bit, but working with them, it takes a lot out of me. I am when I'm in the room with them, they get. A hundred percent of me, and regardless of what what is happening in my private life, um, I'm going to give them my all. And you know, I was uh, I got to a point working in treatment for the last five years where I just didn't have much left in my cup. And now that I'm doing this trauma work, which is so I'm vulnerable and I'm exposed and I'm emotionally raw, I was showing up to work and realizing like listening to the kids talk about their trauma, I just I can't take on anymore. You know, and and I I had a bit of a breakdown about a month ago and realized I either I need a break from this to focus on me, to do some work, to to refill my cup, if you will. Um, And I'm not sure where I'm going from here other than I I really miss the kids. I love working with the kids. I love seeing myself have a positive impact in their life. And that's priceless. Give me some moments from the uh, the trauma therapy. Is it EMDR? What what what? modality of trauma therapy or is it just a uh, talk therapy centered around the trauma? Uh, yeah. So I'd like to share how I was uh, referred to this therapist, my program director at work, I became friends with, and she's, uh, she specializes in trauma. And, you know, I'd shared some things with her about how difficult law enforcement was, which I haven't shared with many people. And I mentioned to her, you know, I think I have some PTSD. Um, is there anybody that you would recommend, and she referred me to this woman uh, who's, who's a trauma therapist in the area, and she said, I think she'll be right for you. And um, I met with her six months ago, and it was weekly individual sessions. It has been, or I'm sorry, bi-weekly sessions, uh, which it's been since the start, and it's talking, you know, for the most part, talking therapy. I get some homework assignments here and there, but that it's become another one of my... Um, my safe places, if you will. Are there any moments that you can share that felt like breakthroughs in um, in your 
Yeah. And I want to say, I, I really believe this process is meant to get worse or feel worse before it gets better. And in the moment, not realizing like, no, we're making progress. You know what it is? I kind of liken the trauma in my experience over the last, my entire life. It's like this boulder, right? And I've, I've shared little rocks here and there, but the boulders remained that, that big, heavy thing that has kept me from, um, experiencing life, you know, and being the real genuine me has, I've not even really looked at until recently. And I started sharing about how I've shared in support group meetings before my story. Mm -hmm. And a couple times I might say, oh, and I was a police officer and it was really stressful. Then on to the next thing. The truth is that job has affected me on a cellular level at my core. It affects the way I interact and perceive the world every second of every day. It's the biggest part of my story. Yeah. And, and I would it, brush over it. You know? And you are, I saw that you were reading uh, The Body Keeps a Score by Besser van der Kolk, which uh, yeah. is, from what I understand, the Bible of how the body stores trauma. Yes. Yeah, so I'm not a big reader. My mm. therapist um, suggested The Body Keeps a Score. It's also a book that we would um, provide some of the kids in treatment, but started reading it. And yep, this book was written for me. He's talking about me. And the more I read it, the more it's like I started highlighting and then realized I'm just I might as well highlight the whole book. Mm -hmm. So I'm about halfway through it, taking my time and I've reread re certain chapters over and over. I'm really trying to to soak it up. But um, yeah, it's been life changing that book. And I'm looking forward to finishing it. I think my therapist has a similar outlook um, or modality to trauma therapy as the writer of the book does. So I can kind of do some homework by reading the book and then showing up for our sessions. Uh, I've had a, a lot of breakthroughs, you know, in treatment but, or in my therapy. I think the biggest one happened last week uh, or I guess leading up to it two weeks ago, I was I was crying and really expressing how debilitating PTSD feels and like there's no way out, you know, maybe for other people. And and if I could go back to working with the teens, a lot of them have PTSD and a lot of them have, have had physical sexual abuse. And so my mind is like, well, I haven't had that. So um, and they're these are kids and they're strong and they're overcoming it. Like, who am I to complain? But trauma comes in various forms and mine just happened to take place over a long period of time. Right. Yeah, what what it doesn't matter what envelope the message that the world isn't safe arrives in. Mm -hmm. Or your your last speaker, I wanted to bring up real quick, Maylee um, Chapin. Yeah, I wanted to first thank her. You know, at, towards the end of the podcast, she shared like her her motivation is to let others know that they're not alone, and she absolutely did that. Her situation totally different. It took place within a 24-hour period, 17 hours, I believe. Mm -hmm. But yet the outcome and the side effects or the symptoms that she talked about, I related with everyone. So circumstances, the period of time, totally different. But the result, very similar. And that's what I could relate with. So thank you, Maylee, for, for yeah. showing me that there's, there's others out there that can relate. And I think that's part of our PTSD is to tell us, I'm the only one. No one else will get this. And I can't let people know the depth of it because most of it is a physical, is a character weakness on my part rather than, no, this is how an average human being would respond to what you experienced. Mm -hmm. That's a really 
hard thing, I think, for trauma survivors to make peace with is that they're not making too big of a deal of it, that they're not exaggerating, uh, that they're not, you know, quote, mishandling what happened to them. Mm -hmm. And then part of it is not talking about it, right? Mm -hmm. The day I left LAPD, I, I buried it, buried it somewhere deep and didn't want to look back. <clears throat> the few times people might ask me questions about, oh, I got a ticket and what should I do? Da, da, da. <clears throat> when I would share about it, I, again, I was talking about somebody else. Mike the cop is not me. Totally detached from that. Um, so I, I think that goes to a breakthrough I had in the, the trauma therapy, which, um, you know, a couple weeks ago, crying and asking my therapist, is there a way out? You know, I can't perceive a way out. I'm stuck. I have the weight of the world on my shoulders. I want to believe there's a way out. And she said, yeah, there is. And it takes a lot of work. But I think you can because you're insightful. Whether she meant it or not, it's what I needed to hear. For somebody to say, yes, there is a way out. And I, I believed her. You know, part of me did. Um, the last session I had, I think she felt like I was ready. You know, I've, I've been connecting the dots of my life, seeing how the things that I grew up in, the environment I grew up in, how I recreated that in my adult life and was repeating those same things, you know, that I chose a career that was chaotic and that where I was going to be on edge all the time, just like I felt growing up. Whenever I thought about Mike the cop, I thought about a failure. I thought about somebody that was a hypocrite. Um, I would see people killed in drinking and driving accidents and the next night I would go drink and drive to cope, right? Um, so talk about putting the badge on and feeling like, I don't deserve to wear this. I'm doing the things that I'm telling people not to do. But that was the insanity of, of my drinking. Um, point being, last week she had me, I forget what the exercise is called, but it's imaginary person in the chair. And it was, um, she suggested I talk to Mike the cop. I'd never talked to him in a loving way. I, I hated him. You know, he failed. Uh, he wasn't emotional and caring and creative, which I am deep down and genuine. But for the first time, and I'm, I'm going to keep the details of the conversation between me and Mike the cop. And it's weird saying Mike the cop like it's somebody else because it's me, right. but yet totally di different perspective and outlook on life. Although I think the essence is the same, but it, different behaviors, right? So I had a really deep conversation with the old me and talked to him in a loving way for the first time and apologized to him for making him suffer for so long when deep down he wanted out. And then as opposed to seeing him as somebody separate, like, no, that's a part of me, but it doesn't have to define who I am today. And then I had this image of me in uniform. I look back and Mike, the cop is saying he's like waving and saying, it's OK. You don't have to be Mike, the cop anymore. We, we can, you know, you can let that part of you rest. And that was a turning point for me that I don't have to live in that, that I don't have to be Mike, the cop all the time anymore you know yeah it's always going to be a part of me but it doesn't have to define me and a job i don't think should ever define us but just that i had that experience and that's all it was it was good it was bad it was ugly it was beautiful and i don't have 
regret, though. I don't feel like it was a mistake. I do believe that it has all led to this place, you know, and, and I'm still working on things. I'm still putting yeah. pieces of the puzzle together. But in the past month, with the help of therapy, I, re- I have put some big pieces together. And it's, you know, we're not ready till we're ready. I've yeah. had I've had people ask me, why didn't you share this stuff with me? People that I've shared many deep, dark secrets with. And I got to tell you, it wasn't intentional. It's like I either didn't realize it because it had become so normal for me mm-hmm. or I just wasn't ready to go there yet. Right. It's like saying to somebody, why didn't you take a shit the day before? <laughs> it comes out when it comes out. Mm-hmm. Sorry for that uh, that visual, but <laughs> um, it, it, uh, it's uh, recovery is circuitous non-linear, confusing, ungraceful, ugly, and beautiful. Yeah. And part of the, the trauma therapy and body keeps a score is in the, the solution is, okay, we've had all these experiences, these memories that have given us a perspective of the world. And that's our reality. That's my mm-hmm. reality. And one way we combat that is to create new experiences that challenge our old beliefs. Mm. And so that's something I just started doing. Um, I had developed a pretty severe case of agoraphobia. Um, You know, for me, my office space used to be the streets, the public. So that was unsafe. That whole office space is unsafe. Therefore, I don't want to leave my house. I don't want to go to the grocery store. I don't want to go to the movie theaters. I don't want to go to a restaurant because something bad could happen at any, any moment. And so just stay home and watch the news. (laughs) (laughs) Stay home and don't watch the news. Yeah, that's right. Um, Yeah, you know, I'm thinking of my my ex-girlfriend, bless her. She was a trooper, but, you know, I I never wanted to go out. She just wanted to go to the beach or go to a movie. And I tell you, it's not that I was a bad boyfriend. It was just it's scary out there. And by keeping you here, I'm protecting you, too, because you don't know how scary of a world it is. And I think that's something that always made me feel different from others is other people don't realize how ugly it is out there and how fragile life is and that a family member could be taking taken away instantly. But I almost took pride in that. Like mm-hmm. other people don't realize, but I know how bad it is, right. you know. And so this uh corner that you've turned. Oh, thank you. And so, you know, I think the goal being wanting to recreate experiences that fly in the face of my old beliefs. And so forcing myself to go out, to go to the grocery store and to consciously, yeah, to be aware of my surroundings. I think that's good for anybody to be Mm -hmm. aware of our surroundings, but I don't have to be waiting for the ambush. I'm not in uniform. I'm not a walking target. I'm just a guy in the grocery store looking for items, you know? And going to a Dodger game, I'd stopped going to Dodger games because I didn't want to be surrounded by people. So I went to a Dodger game in the past few months. And, you know, I got to say, most people don't know on what level I've struggled with this. So my current girlfriend, um, we go to a Dodger game and she doesn't realize in my mind I'm facing this big fear for her. It's just we're going to a Dodger game. And I think, um, you know, as I'm sharing my story more. I want to open up, obviously, with my intimate partner, because mm-hmm. that would increase our intimacy level, right? Mm-hmm. But not realizing how ashamed I was to share that I struggle with this, that I, I have these, these thoughts that play on loop, because that's all a sign of weakness. And I don't want mm-hmm. others to know I, I'm weak 
my brain tells me I'm weak or I know I'm weak. I don't, you know, believe that wholeheartedly today, but uh, not wanting people to think I'm weak. And that goes back to that physical, you know, being stoic and strong, um, but I'm shaking in my boots. And so how did she react when you shared with her? I didn't share that specific moment okay. yet, but I think I'm going to now that I brought it up. Um, but I've been slowly sharing more and more. Yeah. Yeah. And trying, you know, and educating her. And, and we're both kind of learning at the same time. Working in mental health, I've known of PTSD. But for the first time, maybe I, because I wasn't ready to look at it, I hadn't done any research. And then a few weeks ago, doing some online research and reading the book and just every symptom, check, check, um, mainly brought up in the DSM, there's the the 20 symptom questionnaire. And I really want to thank her for sharing that because I did it last night and aced it or failed it. However you want to look at it. <laughs> I scored really high on it. Yeah. There was only one question that I couldn't totally relate with out of the 20. Yeah. There's so much relief in seeing on paper, this is what you have. You know, go back to that 10-year-old kid staring in the mirror crying, what's wrong with me? Something, I don't know what, but I'm different from other people. And now being able to put words to it, I'm not, I don't like to say label, but, but yeah, you know. That it's a thing. That I have. That it's not a personal weakness. Yeah, I have PTSD at no fault of my own, whether it was the environment I was placed in, the parents I was given, the past choices I've made that I can't go back and change now. For whatever reason, I have PTSD, and it has prevented me from living life to the fullest. Um, it's caused me to live in survival mode up until, I think, recently where I made this conscious decision of, okay, I'm a survivor. I can do that. I've proven myself there, you know, and I'm proud of that. I survived long enough, but you know what? Now I'm ready for more, and I want to start living and I had a, a good friend share in a support group meeting a few months back that he had stopped dreaming. And that hit me like a ton of bricks mm -hmm. because I thought to myself, I've never dreamed. I never stopped and asked myself, what do I want to do with my life? What does Michael want to do? You know, what do I want to create in this world? It was just how do I get through mm -hmm. this day? My current girlfriend, who I love dearly, beautiful, beautiful woman with a, a six-year-old son who I see a future with. And so for like the first time, I'm thinking, thinking future and talking about a future. Um, but at some point in the last year, she said to me, you don't have vision or you don't have a vision. And the truth fucking hurts, right? Mm -hmm. And then it sets us free because she was so right. No, I'm just thinking about how to get through today. Um, so it's really nice to be thinking about there's a future and I don't know exactly what it looks like, but it doesn't have to look like what it's been for so long and that there is a world outside of my, my little bedroom and the mm -hmm. gym that, um, is waiting for me to explore. Am I scared? Absolutely. But I'm not going to let that, that fear continue to define my life. And I'm already finding freedom in that. And yeah, there is risk. There's risk in going out in public. Mm -hmm. I could get in a car accident. Um, there could be an active shooter in the grocery store. <sighs> and not to sound cynical, but I would rather die facing that fear, facing my PTSD, 
or and embracing it than to continue hiding out and not experience this life and not experience the relationships that are out there and and the experiences that that are awaiting well buddy i love you and uh i'm so glad you're in my life and thank you for coming and and being so open and honest and, and being my friend thank you paul i really appreciate it you know, one of the, one of the this should be one of my mind of loves is great big muscular guys that are gentle and vulnerable. Just love it, love it. We are sponsored this week by First Person. First Person uh, makes supplements. They're mushroom-based. They're 100% grain-free. They're organic. And they have a couple of different ones. But the one I've been trying is the one, because uh, I get brain fog sometimes, is uh, the one that they call Sunbeam, which uh, helps you, which was also my middle name when I was raised by hippies. <laughs> oh, so stupid. Uh It helps you with motivation and uh, focus because it helps your body's natural production of of dopamine. Uh, So start improving your brain health and cognition with first person. Get 15% off your first order by going to getfirstperson.com and use the offer code MENTAL. That's G-E-T-F-I-R-S-T-P-E-R-S-O-N.com. Offer code MENTAL for 15% off your first order. Get firstperson.com, code MENTAL. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Uh, Let's dive into some surveys. I got a bunch of shame and secret surveys, some love. I got an awful some moment. Don't know if I'm going to make it through all of them. Um... This is uh, Shame and Secrets filled out by a woman who calls herself Moonshine. She identifies as bisexual. She's in her 20s, says she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. She's never been sexually abused, but she has been physically and emotionally abused. She writes, my my partner has had a lot of abusive tendencies with me. He's always been a bit controlling of my, excuse me, thoughts and will put me down, but says it's to help me. There was recently a four-month period where he was drinking heavily every night, and that's when it was the worst. Everything I did annoyed him. He lied to me on multiple occasions, pushed me, put his hands around my neck, elbowed me in the face, etc. The physical stuff only ever happened when he was extremely drunk. Um, Does that really make a difference, though? I don't know. I suppose it does if that person then quits drinking and they're not violent anymore, but... Uh, He would also threaten suicide a lot and would lock himself into the bathroom and cut his legs and drank a lot. We've grown a lot since then because I broke up with him, but but took him back because he promised he'd change. Things haven't been nearly as bad since then, but there are still minor things here and there that I'm hoping we can work through. Any positive experiences with the, the abuser? Absolutely. I'm in love with my abuser. Now, if that's not a t-shirt, let's make it one. Uh, He saved me from my darkest place and then became my darkest place. I stay because I hold on to the hope that he will change and that we can be better together. I am terrified of letting him go. 
darkest thoughts, I think about what it would be like to kill myself in various different ways or how it would be if certain people were dead and how it would affect my life. I don't have homicidal thoughts or anything. It's just the idea of how it would be if suddenly anyone in my life died. Darkest secrets. I had an abortion last year, which really fucked me up, but I haven't dealt with it really. Another secret that I'm ashamed of is that I track a lot of my boyfriend's social media accounts to see if he's talking to other girls. My jealousy is an extremely bad issue for me, and I'm ashamed to admit just how bad it is. Uh, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Uh, I'm interested in role play and things like choking, but my insecurities make it really hard to be comfortable doing those things or even being sexy at all. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to explain to my ex-roommates how fucking awful they were and are. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish for my relationship to truly be healthy one day. I also wish for a stable life where I'm not struggling emotionally as much or financially. It would be incredible to have my music career ever take off. I also wish to recover from my eating disorder. Have you shared these things with others? Some things I've shared with others. A lot of stuff I keep to myself. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel okay because it's less vulnerable when no one knows who you are. Thank you for filling, filling that out, and I, I hope that you can find the growth and the, and the change you want in yourself, uh, because that, I believe, is doable. Um, I, I hope you don't settle for crumbs, hoping somebody else is, is going to change, unless that's what you, what you want. But you might uh, check out the book Facing Love Addiction by, by Pia Melody, if you do... Um, want to learn more about feeling stuck in abusive relationships where you're hoping the other person's going to change. Um, this is an awful moment filled out by um, a person who calls themselves, it's right behind me, isn't it? And they write, I recently went through a breakup, my first ever big heartbreak. My now ex and I met up to go for a walk to talk about everything. And we found a bench in the shade at a park And we talked in a way we never had before. I felt like we were finally seeing each other, but we were also saying goodbye. I felt like I was falling apart and being put back together at the same time. It was this alive, visceral anguish, tangible and painful. At some point during our conversation, two older guys came and took the bench a few feet away from us. My ex and I were holding hands, looking into each other's eyes and sharing some intimate but not at all sexual touches. I guess the guys were watching us, though, because at one point I heard one of them in a classic creepy guy southern accent say, Yeah, they're getting it. Look at them go. And then he softly wolf whistled. You don't find that sexy? You don't find that the least bit sexy? This is uh, from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by uh, somebody who calls himself, a woman who calls herself 71 Colfax Road. She identifies as straight. She's in her 20s, says she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. When I was a teenager, I was hooking up with my on and off again boyfriend who always pushed me further than I wanted to go. As it progresses, I didn't feel comfortable saying no for fear 
he would keep going and not listen. That sounds awful. Uh, She's been emotionally abused. My mother has Munchausen by proxy and convinced me and everyone around her I have mental and physical disabilities that I do not actually have. I did not realize until I was 18 and finally understood the emotional and physical ways it has impacted me. Any positive experiences with the abusers? I have many good memories of my mother. Vacations, playing on the playground, even being in the hospital, but a lot of them are tainted by the knowledge I now have about her illness. Darkest thoughts. I am ashamed to admit that I sometimes hate my mother. Red, hot, passionate hate. Because daughters are supposed to love their mothers, especially ones that appear loving and caring darkest secrets. As a child, to deal with what was happening, I would steal food and items from stores, and I'm still ashamed that I did that. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. I have some rape fantasies, and sharing that makes me feel so ashamed and embarrassed and wrong. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would love to be able to tell mom I know what she did to me and my sister, but doing so would completely destroy the semblance of a relationship we have now. That's got to be really hard. That has got to be really hard, keeping that truth under wraps, man. I fucking hate elephants in the room. I hate them. And I grew up, <laughs> I grew up on a safari of elephants in the room. Uh, What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish to go back and change my childhood, to stop the medical appointment and hospitalizations and tell myself that there is nothing wrong with me like I do long believed. Uh, Have you shared these things with others? I've shared these things with friends and they have have been nothing but supportive. Uh, Writing these down, I feel somewhat better but also nervous that people will know who I am. Um... Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Just that to those who have gone through what I have, distancing yourself from that person that did that to you is so important, as is understanding how it affects you now. Thank you for filling all of that that out. Sound like a sweet soul. This is uh, from the love survey filled out by Uh, a person who calls themselves, at least I still have my hair. And they write, I love going back to an old album uh, I've had for years and discover I still love it as much as I did then. I love that no matter how rotten I feel, when I sit down, my face will be attacked by my dog's affectionate, affectionate kisses. I love finishing the bills and still having a decent cushion in my checking account. I love when my life, wife laughs uncontrollably because of something involving a fart. I love my dog's look of accomplishment as he proudly struts around the backyard with an old dodgeball he finally popped, the dodgeball being almost as big as him. I love the feeling of my oldest set of uh, Dungeons and Dragons dice and how they're still reliable all these years later. I love when people give me an earnest compliment about my painting ability. I love the singing voice of the late Ronnie James Dio. He's talking about the man on the Silver Mountain. Uh, I love when one of my kids tells me a story about how they took no shit from some bully in their middle school. I love when my dog is playing and completely loses his goddamn mind and starts randomly (laughs) running through the house as fast as he can. What we call going full zoom zoom. 
Oh my God, that last one do I love. Those are all great, but I especially love when dogs go nuts. I loved it when my uh, Charlie, one of my very first dogs, she wasn't really that active, but every once in a while, we'd, she'd be in the backyard and she would do these tight circles a hundred miles an hour and like her shoulder an inch from the grass. I don't know how she got so low. She would run like she was being chased by a ghost. That fucking killed me every time. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself finally free. She is in uh, her 60s. She identifies as straight. Uh, was raised in, a pr- she says, a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, when I was 46, I was alone with my father for a day and a night. At bedtime, I became extremely afraid he would attack me sexually. I couldn't understand my panic since I had no memory of abuse. From that night onwards, memories resurfaced. I was a psychological mess for years. I had counseling off and on uh, for 12 years and had two mental breakdowns where I lost touch with reality. My grandmother had told my sister, who told me when I was 13, that my father had hurt me, quote, down there, unquote, when I was very young. She said she had told my mother, but she didn't believe her. I had a wart growing on my inner thigh when I was seven or eight. I found out it was a genital wart. My mother told me uh, one time, I never believed anyone. I could almost say I am over it all, but like diamonds, (laughs) mental illness is forever. The pain over the memories is gone. The effects of abuse are still with me. Boy, that's an interesting way of putting that. The pain over the memories is gone, but the effects of abuse are still with me. That's a really great um, observation because I think a lot of times we think once the pain is gone that the effects of the abuse are gone. Uh, I have social phobia and PTSD. Still, I have a lot of joy within me along with the fear of people. I have children, grandchildren, and a husband who loves me. Uh, She's been physically abused. When I was a teen, I snuck out of the house to go to a dance at my high school. My parents were religious and said dancing was sinful. Uh, My father, I always loved, by the way, the molesting father who forbids dancing. Uh... My father showed up at the dance, grabbed me by my hair, and dragged me along to the car. He kissed me, kicked me in my back. When we got home, he got his belt and whipped me with it on my shins. He made everyone, brother, two sisters, and mom, watch. He kept it up. I just stood there, making not one sound. I could see he was angry that I wasn't crying. Finally, my mother said, that's enough, Bob, and he stopped. I had a large gash in my leg. My father told me when I was very small, I kept getting out of bed crying, so he beat me black and blue all over my body. He apologized. I have no memory of this. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Yes, exclamation point. And that is a hard thing to reconcile with the abuse. Sometimes dad could be fun and we would all go to Disneyland, the ocean, and for Sabbath drives in the country. I have happy memories. When I was an adult, we got along fine unless we talked politics. I do think my family loved my I do think my father loved the family, but he slept around on my mom and sexually abused me. 
uh, deepest, darkest thoughts. Whenever I make a mistake, no matter how small, I used to think, my father hates me, my mother hates me, and God hates me. Since my father died, I've become closer to God, I think. My mother hates me. Uh, Darkest secrets. I want to murder my first husband when I heard him. I wanted to murder my first husband when I heard him laughing with a woman he had slept with when I left to go to my brother's funeral. I was gone a month. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I used to fantasize about being raped or abused. I quit doing that years ago. It is bad for my mental health. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Nothing. Anything you wish for? I wish I enjoyed driving and leaving the house like I used to. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, I've shared. It went okay, and uh, I do go out with my daughters. How do you feel after writing these things down? Okay. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I've met some women on blogs who have gone through similar experiences and have become close to them. That's good to hear. Tracy, what is the deal? If the air conditioning has been running almost constantly, I think her skin's getting dry. Do we need to give you a milk bath? Should I go draw you a milk bath? Would you like 2% or whole milk? You would like oat milk, wouldn't you? This is from the Love Survey. And uh, this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Delight. And she writes, uh, actually, I don't know if it's a man or a woman. I love when someone takes the time to thank you when you feel your job is thankless. I love a breeze on a warm night, the chills, the deep, deep, deep sense of losing yourself in love, the memories that come rushing back, all because of a breeze. I love when the window is open and you hear the first few raindrops hit the windowsill and then they become rapid and turn into a clapping audience, cheering, okay, insomniac, we have no fear, have no fear, we are here, now you can sleep. I love lucid dreaming where you decide whether or not to have sex with Jared Leto in a nightclub bathroom. And of course you do it. I love waking from dreams that leave you feeling like you've been visited by a long dead pet that let you pet them or play with them just once more and your eyes fill with tears, both of joy and sadness. I love when an inside joke from years past comes to you at the right moment and the person on the other end of that inside joke loses their shit laughing and you can pat yourself on the back knowing you made both of your days. That's so fantastic. Uh, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Mr. Floppy Balls and he only filled off uh, part of this but I thought it was really... Uh, Interesting what he did fill out, so I wanted to read it. Uh, He is in his 30s, identifies as straight, and says he was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. He's never been sexually abused, and he's not sure if he has been physically or emotionally abused. Darkest thoughts. I have impulsive thoughts about death and dead bodies. Somehow, I find dead people more fascinating than the living. I'm obsessed by the process following death. 
the stages of decay from freshly dead to skeleton. I've only ever seen dead bodies at wakes and funerals, but I sometimes fantasize about finding a dead body and being able to examine it, not in a necrophilia sort of way, just out of morbid curiosity. Uh, Darkest Secrets. I search the internet for pictures of dead and rotting bodies, sometimes very gory images after a traumatic accident or suicide. I do this until till I feel sick to my stomach and cannot bear any more images. I don't know why I do this and wish I could stop. You know, um, who, who might be somebody uh, that you might be interested in reading is Caitlin uh, uh, Doughty, who has been, um, or is it Doughty? Fuck. I always forget because the hockey player, Drew, uh, is named uh, uh, Doughty. I think it's Caitlin Doughty. Fuck. I've had her on twice. And I can't remember how to pronounce her name. See? Even when I do do something, I do it wrong. I am not enough. Um, but she writes a lot about um, death. She's a, a mortician. And I think that would be certainly worth checking out. And then finally, this is from the love survey. This is uh, filled out by Rachel. And she writes, I love the moment every morning when I wake up and my cat snuggles up next to me, putting his arms around me and purring, kneading, and drooling. I love when I go to see a favorite band in concert and lose myself in the music. I love when I find a film that genuinely moves me, a rare gem that's willing to push the limits of what is safe and comfortable and truly make the audience feel something. I love warm, breezy days where I can have all the windows open. And I love fighting for animal rights and the purpose it has given me in this world. If you are, I love those, by the way, and I have to say high five to finding meaning and purpose in the world. It, it is, in my opinion, it's the lotto. Having a feeling of meaning and purpose in your life, if you have never felt it before, try it. I don't know how to tell you to try it. Service is a good a good place. Trying to make the world a better place. Um, but it uh, getting to do this podcast is probably the best muscle relaxer <laughs> I could have ever been prescribed by by a doctor. Um, anyway, if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, I hope. This episode reminds you that you're not alone and help is out there. And uh, so is our family, the family we always wanted to have. It's out there. It's just a matter of, uh, of finding them. And uh, never forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.